The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastabl.org. More church. Man, it's good to see your faces. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are going to be. Uh, while you are turning there, a couple quick commercials for you. We've got a lot going on today. Uh, as you saw on the way in, we have a missions fair going on. It's amazing to be able to highlight all the many partners, uh, both partners that Missio Day had and partners that Bent Creek had before we came together as one church. And so on your way out, if you didn't stop at a table uh, on the way in, stop at all of them on the way out and see uh, what God is doing here in our area and around the world. Um, Our church will give this year somewhere in the neighborhood of $140,000 away to missions, to church planting, to uh, organizations in our city and around the world. We take this very seriously. And so I'd love for you to at least get exposed to what God is doing in those places, if not find ways that you can partner with them. Second thing I got for you, uh, baptisms are coming up. So uh, we're, we've never done this before, I don't think, but we're going to do baptisms on Easter Sunday. Uh, and so we've got a few weeks to prepare for that. If you have not been baptized before, if you are new to the faith or returning to faith and you don't know if your baptism counted when you were a kid or whatever, we'd love to talk to you about that. Um, baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. And if you want to go public with your faith on Easter Sunday, we'd love to do that with you. And so you can sign up on a Connect card. Uh, I think on the website, there's a place to sign up as well. But let us know that you're interested in baptism, and we'll follow up with you about that. Uh, Last thing I got, just an update on uh, phase two giving. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, the the plastic against the back walls there is not exactly the aesthetic we're going for. uh, But we are in the process of raising funds to build out our offices and a toddler bathroom and a kitchenette and some other things. And so uh, about 10,000 or so has come in for that so far, uh, which leaves about 140,000 left to raise. Um, And here's, I just wanna break this down for you. My math may be a little wonky here, but just follow me. Uh, If if, there's about, I don't know, three or 400 of us in the room. If everybody gave an extra 60 bucks a week for the next seven or eight weeks, we'd have it. Like that's how simple it is. And some of you can give more, substantially more, praise God for that. Some of you can give a lot less, that's fine, praise God for that. But if all of us participate together in uh, contributing whatever the Lord allows us to contribute, uh, I I trust in his provision that we'll have everything we need to get those offices built, that toddler bathroom built, the kitchenette built so we can restore coffee service, amen? That's maybe all I needed to say. Hey, give 140,000, we can have coffee. And you're like, I'm in, what do we need to do? So uh, we're going to start a little, no, a coffee shop. So anyway, um, you can, uh, if you need information about that, I think there's still some of these out here. It's a renovation breakdown. And uh, this tells you kind of what we're aiming for in each of those categories. But we hope to get started real soon on the toddler bathroom at the very minimum. Okay, I think that's all the commercials I got for now. Uh, And we get to welcome our first batch of covenant members to Steadfast Church this morning. Isn't that awesome? So yeah, at the end of the gathering, uh, we'll have several folks down here at the front and uh, we're receiving membership applications uh, through Palm Sunday. So get those in if you would. Okay, Um, Revelation chapter two. So we're in a series learning from both the witness of the early churches and Jesus's warnings to those churches because we wanna be a church that makes it. Well, right. If, if Jesus was to write us a letter, we want that letter to be a letter of praise and thanksgiving and not like, hey, I got some stuff we need to chat about. So we want to learn. Now, early in this book of Revelation, we find these letters, uh, seven letters to be exact, from Jesus uh, to seven ancient churches in uh, Asia Minor. If you can throw up that map real quick. I think it's there. Um, so here's the, this, the churches we're looking at. This is all modern day Turkey. We've looked so far at the church at Ephesus. Last week we looked at the church at Smyrna. And today we're looking at the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. Uh, and so that's where we're gonna be. Then we'll go on and make this sort of circuit. Uh, this is probably a mail route or a trade route. And so that's sort of why the letters are in that order. Um, 
these letters were not just recorded for those specific churches. If, if you remember last week, I told you, Jesus says to put all the letters in a book and send it to the churches, plural, which means that all of these letters are for all those churches and they're for us today. There is something we can learn from them. So they were for them, but they're also for us. We see Jesus's commendation. We see his critique. We see his correction. And, and we can learn from that. So Ephesus was a church that had solid doctrine, but they had lost their first love. They were harsh and critical and demeaning. Uh, we saw last week the church at Smyrna had no correction. They were a faithful church enduring trial because of Jesus. And we can learn what it means for us to be prepared to endure trial for the name of Jesus as well. Today, the church at Pergamum, uh, they have similar issues to the church at Smyrna in that they're facing hardship and opposition because of Jesus. And in a way, they have opposite errors to the church at Ephesus. So as we get into it, here's the question I want to pose to you. Can you remember the last time you were wrong about something? <laughs> when it mattered. And I don't just mean, like, sometimes you can be wrong about something and it's not really that big of a deal, right? Like, oh, I thought it was blue, but it's actually purple. Although one time, I worked, side note, I worked at this screen printing shop and uh, we were printing shirts for this guy who had a, a, a fancy car and he sent us pictures and we printed the shirts based off the picture and we sent him and, and the car was blue, okay? And then we sent him to him and he called us back and he said, don't you know that car was purple? And we had to reprint the whole lot of 700 shirts. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> do you remember when you were wrong? Wrong about something that mattered, like so wrong that you had to change your opinion or change your position on a thing. Do you remember a time when you were wrong about God, about who he is? about the things that he has said, something that maybe you were wrong about yourself about, that you had to sort of course correct and, and uh, change something about that. How do we respond when we're wrong? How do we tend to respond when we're wrong? That's kind of the question that we're going to be posing as we look at the church at Pergamum today. So look with me at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. I will read down to verse 17. I'll pray for us and we'll get going here. Now, one of the things that is powerful about the book of Revelation, but also makes it weird and sort of hard to understand is the imagery. And so we're going to see that in this passage. Verse 12, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel at the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have this, sorry, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be together under the authority of your word and in the presence of your Holy Spirit. And God, I ask that you would do what only you can do in our hearts this morning. Meet us in our, time, in our place of need, in our place of rebellion, in our place of uh, naivete. Where, however we are coming in this morning, would you meet us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Would you rebuke us if necessary? And would you conform us more and more into the image of Christ? We are here because we want God. And so would you be faithful as you always are to meet us in this place and to speak to us? Holy Spirit, please empower me that I might give these people your word that brings life and, and that my opinions would go to the wayside, but that the truth of your word would abide. I ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, so as I did last week, let me give you just a little context for the city that we're talking about. 
Pergamum is the modern-day city Bergama, which is in, uh, in uh, Turkey there. It's about 70 miles north of Smyrna. So if you remember, we looked at Ephesus first. Smyrna was about 35 miles to the north of uh, Ephesus, and now we're looking 70 miles, like roughly from here to Johnson City, okay, uh, to the, the city of Pergamum. It was inland, about 15 miles. So whereas Smyrna and Ephesus were coastal cities, uh, Pergamum was inland, but it was a very important city. It was important religiously. There were temples to Zeus, to uh, Asclepius, who was the, known as the god of healing, to Augustus. Augustus, actually, when he was emperor, uh, set up, he, he decided that Pergamum would be the place where he set up a temple to worship himself, the first living emperor, to set up a temple in the worship of him. And so uh, it was a very important city religiously, and, and emperor worship sort of began in Pergamum. It was uh, important politically. Under Rome, it was the capital of the Asian province. It was the site of the Roman proconsul. Uh, it was important intellectually. There was a library in Pergamum that boasted two, over 200,000 volumes. It's actually said that, um, that parchment was invented in Pergamum when papyrus was, uh, was not being exported from Egypt. It was important medically. Of course, the God of healing is supposed to, have, to reside there, and so uh, people can't die. <laughs> So they, so they were advancing in all kinds of alternative medicine and, and practices to help people uh, get better and, and to, um, to live. It was important legally. It was the center of law. Uh, they had a, a saying there, really in the whole Roman, Roman Empire. I'm not going to give you the Latin, but the, 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 the term translates as the right of the sword. The right of the sword, which all capital punishment in the Roman Empire at this time happened here in Pergamum. The right of the sword. And so when Jesus speaks to this church, here's what he says. Verse 12, once again, to the angel at the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the, two, the sharp two-edged sword. Here's what he's saying. Authority and power do not reside with Rome. They reside with me. I am the one with, all, with ultimate power and ultimate authority. Now, uh, if you are a student of the Bible, you might also remember that the sharp two-edged sword is also a very clear allusion to the word of God. Hebrews chapter four, for instance, says that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, sharp uh, to, to uh, divide between uh, bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, so Jesus is alluding to his word, that there is power in his words. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, he says he comes back and he judges by the sword that comes out of his mouth. He's judging by his word. So that's who Jesus is. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has conquered and is conquering, who is standing before them with all authority and all power. And he says, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So not only is Satan's throne there, Satan has set up, set up shop there and he lives there. What do rulers do from a throne? It's a real easy question. What do rulers do from a throne, class? They rule. <laughs> they issue commands and decrees and edicts. So here, this is a city of such heightened idolatry and Roman nationalism and antagonism to the things of Jesus that it is as if the enemy himself has built his headquarters in the city of Pergamum. It's hard to be a Christian there. Charles Spurgeon put it this way about uh, about this passage. He said, there are places in the world at this day. Now this was in the 1800s. <laughs> so it, if you think it was bad in the 1800s, what about now? There are places in the world at this day where sin has so much the upper hand or where error and unbelief reign so supreme that the devil would seem to have taken up his residence and to have made it his capital city. This is a trying neighborhood for a church of Christ. And yet it is the place where it is most needed. So as with Smyrna, cultural pressure is, is pressing in on the church. And um, if you remember to Smyrna last week, he said, uh, Satan is about to throw some of you in jail. And we, we realized that the cultural pressure, the political pressure they were facing uh, um, 
under the surface was actually spiritual in nature. Same with, same with Smyrna. The, this cultural pressure has its roots in satanic oppression. But here's the thing. It doesn't look spooky. Like there's no smoke and thunder and fire and it's like Skeletor and Castle Grayskull, right? There's no, there's no like, most of you don't get that. Come on, <laughs> He-Man. There's no, it's not the eye of Sauron. Is that better? Does that work for you? Okay. If you would have asked the people in, in, in Pergamum, what does this satanic oppression look like? Here's what they would have said. Well, we have to say Caesar's Lord. And, and the things that we hold dear in terms of morality, you know, the culture's trying to push us in a different direction. And they're saying we can't hold to this, then we have to be more open and inclusive and affirming and embracing of these other practices and ways. It just looks like culture. It just looks like politics. And Jesus says it has its roots in satanic oppression. Now, there was one commentator who put it this way. He said, there was a pitched battle being fought in the city of Pergamum in which the soldiers were not men, but ideas. Now think about how that would, what that would do to you if you lived in the city of Pergamum at that time and you were surrounded by, here's a temple to Zeus and a temple to Asclepius and a temple to Augustus and a temple to uh, Dionysus and, and um, there is this heightened nationalism for the things of Rome, make Rome great again, right? And, and, and all of this is sort of building up. How would that form you? How would that shape you? So you and I think we think in a vacuum. We don't. Our thinking is, is formed and shaped by the ideas and the surroundings and the cultural practices that we engage in, that we participate in. And so Jesus says to them, yet you hold fast my name. Even in the days of Antipas, so we don't know much about Antipas, um, Tradition says that perhaps he was a leader in the early church. Um, he was martyred. And in fact, the word witness and the word martyr are the same word in the Greek. Um, but, he, but Jesus calls him his faithful witness, which I think is amazing because that's one of the ways that Jesus reveals himself to us in Revelation chapter one. He says, I am the faithful witness. And now he says of Antipas, he was a faithful witness. That's amazing. You know what that tells me? that he calls him out by name in the days of Antipas. Here's this guy that history has forgotten, but Jesus remembers him. What does that tell me? That tells me that Jesus sees you. He sees me. He knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. He knows your conflict. He knows your trouble. He sees you. He knows you. Isn't that a beautiful thing, church? No, th this was not recent. He says in the days of Antipas, which means this happened a while ago. Okay, this is probably the second or maybe even third generation of the church at this point. So Antipas perhaps was a leader in the early days of the church and he was martyred for his faith and the church has continued to hold fast to the name of Jesus. He says, I praise you for that. I, I thank you for that. You're doing well. So this is the next generation, right? Um, I can imagine maybe there's some OG believers from the original days of the church, right? And the music's too loud and everyone is too casual and it's a bit of a struggle, no? Okay. And, and yet he commends them because they have put primary things first and secondary things second. They have hold, held fast to the name of Jesus. They have endured hardship for his sake, but they have not given up. Church, are you holding fast to Jesus? No matter what you're experiencing right now, what you're going through, the pressure that you're facing, are you holding fast to Jesus. This church was holding fast to Jesus, but, but he has some correction for them. Now, I forgot to give you my point. So first point, note takers, you can just put this on the top of whatever you wrote down. Commendation for courage, commendation for courage. We saw that, right? They've been courageous, they've endured, etc. Now, second thing I want you to see here in verses 14 and 15 is critique for compromise, critique for compromise. Look at verse 14 with me. 
but I have a few things against you. Now, remember the church at Ephesus, he said, I have this one thing against you. The church at Smyrna, he had zero things against them. The church at Pergamum, he's like, we need to chat. I got a few things. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And um, all of us know exactly what that means, so we can move on, right? In case you didn't read the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25 this morning in your quiet time like I did, uh, it was just in my reading plan. I didn't plan it that way, it just happened. I really did, by the way, that actually happened. Um, Here's what he's saying. This church is largely withstanding pressure from the outside, but there are some inside the church who are starting to flirt with bad doctrine. Now, some is an important phrase here, an important word. It's not everybody. Not everybody. In the, this isn't being taught in the church. We'll see that next week with the church at Thyatira. This isn't being taught, but there are some within the church, not everyone, but a few, enough to concern Jesus, who, okay, he says uh, in the first part, you are holding fast my name. So there are some who are holding fast the name of Jesus, and there are others who are holding to false teaching. And you can already see the tension, right? We're holding, to, we're holding fast to Jesus, but we're starting to hold on to some false doctrine, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, they had not abandoned Jesus. They had not abandoned him. But they were adopting, some of them, principles, values, ideas, false beliefs from the culture, from the world, and bringing them in and holding them and holding on to Jesus at the same time. So the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, what in the world uh, does that mean? So in the book of Numbers, which I would actually encourage you to read, the first part has a bunch of lists, but after that, it gets really good. And it, it explains the journey of God's people as they're making their way towards the promised land. Now, um, if you have read the book of Numbers, um, God basically says, okay, I've rescued you out of Egypt. I'm bringing you to a land that I've promised you. The problem is people live there. So what's going to happen is you're going to come on your way in, okay, and you're going to ask people for, for pass to, to go through their land to get to the land I've promised you. And if they let you in, great. And if they don't, I will conquer them for you. So as Israel advances, there are certain nations and, and countries who say, nope, you can't pass. And then God says, all right, I'll smite them. And boom, they move out of the way and, and on goes Israel. Now, Balak is the king of Moab. He sees Israel advancing and he is scared. So he finds this uh, prophet um, named Balaam. Some of you might remember uh, Balaam's donkey. I'll put it that way, right? You've heard God speaks through the donkey. Uh, this is the same story. He hires Balaam. Now, Balaam is a prophet, but he's up for hire, if you know what I'm saying, right? He's, he's not on the up and up. And so Balak hires Balaam in order to curse the people of God as they're advancing in. Well, Balak, uh, Balaam takes the bribe and he gets ready to curse the people of God, but he's actually a prophet and a true prophet and true prophets can only speak the words that God gives them. So every time he opens his mouth, instead of cursing, blessing comes out, <laughs> And Balak's like, what are you doing, man? He's like, I'm sorry, I can, oh, how can I curse what God has blessed? And it happens three or four different times where Balak's like, all right, let's try this again. They'll set up the altars and go. And he blesses them. And he's like, are you kidding me, man? So four times, okay, four times, he, he blesses instead of curses. And the people of God are advancing. Now, Balaam realizes, you know what? I can't, I can't curse the people, but I bet I could coax them. So he devises a plan and he says, hey, Balak, here's what you need to do. Rather than me cursing them, you need to get the Moabite women to seduce them. And they do so. And the Moabite men give themselves over to immorality. And because of that, they give themselves over to the food sacrifice to idols, to idol worship. And as a result, 24,000 Israelites die. The, Nicolait, the Nicolaitans, we don't know much about, as Mark said in, in the um, book to uh, the letter to Ephesus, but we gather that they were a New Testament equivalent 
In other words, um, so in Acts chapter 15, uh, when, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and they, and they bless his ministry, they write a letter to all the Gentile churches and they say, we don't wanna put any other burden on you other than to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Just those two things. We're not gonna burden you with any other things, just those two. And the Nicolaitans were like, yeah, but we can do those two too. God's gracious, he's merciful. He's already paid for all our sins. So why not give ourselves? If sin abounds, grace will abound even more. And they took the grace of God and they made it an excuse for a license. So again, this was not taught in Pergamum, but it was starting to creep in to the church. This is exactly what Paul warned the church at Ephesus about in, in chapter 20 of Acts, when he says, um, he says to the elders, right, keep a close watch on yourselves and your doctrine and watch out because from within your own selves are going to come false teachers who lead people astray. From within, the, the greatest threat to the church, even to this day, the greatest threat to the church is not outside these walls, it's right here in this room. So the problem that Ephesus had, if you remember, was that they were too harsh. They were standing for truth. They were standing against false doctrine, but they were jerks about it. They were harsh and unloving and unkind. The problem that Pergamum has is they're too nice. There's no discernment. There is no willingness to stand against these false doctrines that are coming in. And it is a big deal to Jesus. Why? Because he knows that our thinking is formed by the ideas and the surroundings and the cultural practices that we participate in. And without discernment, church, which comes through God's word, by his spirit, and in community with other believers. That's where discernment comes from. Word, spirit, people of God. Without discernment, it is very easy to become deluded as Paul warns the Colossian church about. And here's what happens. It's not that false teaching just seems totally crazy. Like if it was totally crazy stuff popping up, I think most of us, even the least discerning among us would be like, if somebody was like, you know, there's actually another person of God. It's not just Trinity, there's four of them. We'd be like, I don't think so, right? But Paul warns us in Colossians that they are plausible arguments. Plausible. They sound really good. They're well thought out. Some people read some books, right? They're using a lot of original language terms that I never heard of. And I'm like, well, I guess they must be right about this, okay? And here's the problem. A few degrees off over 20 years leads you way, way, way off path. So here, here's the battle that I face, pastors face today, churches face today, okay? We get you for like an hour, okay, 90 minutes, right? We get you for 90 minutes on a Sunday. Maybe you go to community group and open the Bible there and, and talk about real life and how the scripture applies to it. Maybe you go to one of the men's or women's Bible studies that are on offer, Maybe, pray, maybe, please Jesus, you have a regular rhythm of being, having your nose in the book yourself, that you have a regular rhythm each day of getting up and opening this word and sticking your nose in it and getting your knees on the floor and praying and, and seeking God for yourself. But the average American spends two and a half hours per day on social media, just on social. That's not all screen time. That's just Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, whatever else is out there these days. Two and a half hours a day. And there are so many voices out there, friends, with plausible arguments. And they say stuff in a 30 second TikTok or minute or whatever it is, and you're like, never heard that before. That sounds interesting. And because you don't know the scripture, you don't know that they're off their rocker. And, and these, these voices are reinforced to you by the algorithms, right? You know that, right? That you watch one video and it, it says, oh, you like that? You're gonna like this too. 
And it's the same kind of content and it's just reinforcing confirmation bias and bringing you stuff that has no other perspective, only that perspective. And you start to soak that stuff in two and a half hours a day versus whatever time you spend in the scriptures on your own and this 90 minutes we have together on Sunday. Now I will admit to you, especially those of you in the room who are younger, there are a lot of knots that we need to untie from evangelicalism over the last 30 years, a lot. There was a lot done in the name of Jesus that was not biblical. By well-meaning people, by the way, they didn't hate you. They didn't have discernment either, some of them. Okay, but here's the, here's the reality. Many of these voices that are out there right now are not trying to, to weed out the, the bad stuff and hold on to the good. They are trying to redefine things like personhood and Morality and identity and gender and love and family and justice and equality and freedom and the role of government and all of these things. And, and here's the problem. I've never seen someone step outside of orthodoxy, either a person or a church. I've never seen someone step outside of orthodoxy in only one area. They've never stepped outside in one area and we're like, I'm good. Just this one thing. It leads to all kinds of other things. And before you know it, they have walked away from the Christian faith entirely. So, so we, are, we are living in a world which is trying to redefine all of these kinds of terms. And here's the reality. All of these things, he who is the word of God has already spoken decisively and authoritatively about. Well, but shouldn't we be gracious? Shouldn't we listen to other opinions? We should be gracious. Jesus was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. And so should his church be. Who has more influence over you right now? Christ or this world we live in? Who has more influence? Who is speaking into your life more? Now, listen, I'm not saying the culture is an enemy. Please don't hear that. Okay? Sometimes churches make the mistake of preaching against the culture. Culture is just where we live. It's like your house. Culture is the thing you live in. So preaching against culture is like preaching against someone's house. It's where they live. You're like, that's a dumb house. No, don't do that. That's where they live. Okay, but we have got to find ways to lovingly engage with the world around us and speak truth into that culture. And not just lump gospel grenades over the fence in, in the hopes that it does something and people come to Jesus one day. Is that making sense? Okay. So who has more influence in your life? Culture or Christ? All right, last, last thing. You guys with me so far? Last thing. I want you to see here, this is a dumb title, but it's all I could come up with. These aren't scripture. It's just my stupid points. Correction for conquering. Correction for conquering. Look at verse 16. So what does Jesus have to say to a church that has withstood pressure from the outside, but is lacking discernment and the ability to speak truth to the inside and false doctrines and bad theology is rising up from within? What does he say to the church? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, now let me read that one more time because listen to what he says. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's where I got it from. <laughs> to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name on it, written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. So here again, the book of Revelation is full of imagery. Imagery is powerful, but it's also kind of weird. It's hard to understand. And we see that here, right? The hidden manna, the stone, the name that no one knows. Now there is a, there's a progression or maybe a better phrase is a regression that we're gonna see over the next three churches, okay? Uh, including today's. So the church at Pergamum is flirting some in the church are flirting with bad doctrine, false teaching, worldly influence. 
the church at Thyatira has wholeheartedly embraced this false teaching. In fact, they're the ones teaching it. False doctrine. Then we get to the church at Sardis and he says to the church, you look alive, but you're dead. And that is the regression that every single church will face if we are not careful and discerning. Because biblical illiteracy, which I believe is at maybe the most heightened state since the Bible wasn't even in a language you can understand. You've got, we have Bibles everywhere. You can, you can pick up any translation you want to on your phone. There's even a Hawaiian pigeon virgin. You know what that is? It's like Creole. You can read the Bible in Creole, beloved, okay? Any, any version you want is out there at your fingertips. And we would rather watch Netflix or something instead of read God's word. Okay, that's not a, that feels like guilt. I'm sorry. It's not, I don't mean it. I don't mean it to be guilty, but like, what are we doing, friends? God, God has given us his living and active word sharper than to any two-edged sword to divide, to discern, to discern between your thoughts and intentions. And you're like, mm, I don't know. In this book is life. It is life. It is, it is honey for your lips. It is sustenance for your soul. Do not avoid the scriptures. Biblical illiteracy coupled with lack of discernment, which comes from the scripture and the spirit leads to compromise, which leads to deception, which leads to death. And so Jesus' words here to his church and to us start with this, repent, repent. Now, Mark did a fantastic job talking about repentance in the church at Ephesus. Um, I, I wanna add to that just a little bit, okay? This is the only command in the entire passage, repent. So we need to pay attention. Now, Mark said, and, I, and it's true, repentance means changing your mind. But it's not like, well, I wanted to go to Papa's and Beer after church, but maybe we'll go to the Chinese buffet now. It's not that kind of change of mind, okay? It's more change of heart. In fact, I, I like the, the Hebrew understanding of the word repent because Jesus was Jewish and he would have had a Hebraic you know, thought process. The Hebrew understanding of repent is um, to return, to return, to turn away from one thing and to turn to another. In other words, to turn away from my sin and my selfishness and my self-sufficiency and to turn back to God. There's a beautiful picture of this in Luke chapter 15. We call it the prodigal son. The son wanders off, right? Squandering his inheritance. And then what does he do? He returns. And when he gets home, does he, does he change any behaviors? Because here's the thing. I think a lot of us think repentance is stop doing bad, start doing good. That's the fruit of repentance. That's not actual repentance. Repentance starts with a change of heart. And, and, and in Luke 15, the son says, I've really, blew, I've really blown it. I've, scru I've screwed up so bad. I don't even think my dad's going to let me call him dad again. But I need to go home. And he goes home. And before he can even get the full I'm sorry speech out of his, out of his mouth, what does his father do to him? Embraces him. Puts the robe on him, the signet ring, the sandals, right? It's returning but it starts with how we're thinking. Again, Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. Um, it cuts between soul and spirit, our thoughts and intentions. Um, in fact, in, in the book of Acts, when Peter's preaching that sermon to the 3,000, after he gets done preaching the gospel, you know what the text says? They were cut to the heart. The word of God cut them, cut them wide open, flayed them, and they were like, okay, what do we do now? And he said, repent and believe. Here's what happens in repentance. We acknowledge that God's words have ultimate authority over our lives. We admit our failure to believe them, our failure to submit to them, our failure to love what God loves, our failure to hate what God hates, our failure to do what God says through his word. And so we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our failure. We acknowledge our unbelief. But you know what else we acknowledge? This is so crucial. In repentance, we acknowledge that mercifully, 
God does not view us according to our sin, but according to Christ. See, Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. He never compromised. He endured faithfully to the end. Where we are weak, Jesus was strong. Where we have folded to temptation, Jesus was tempted in every single way that we are, yet he was without sin. And here's the beautiful thing about it. At the cross, Jesus, the scripture says, was pierced for our transgressions. Why? So that we could be healed by his stripes. So listen, no sinner has ever come in true repentance before God and been refused and they never will be. In Christ, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are actually called spotless and blameless and above reproach in Christ, but you must come in repentance first. So he calls us to repent, but then he says, if not, I will come to you, but I will war against them. Who's them? Those who are within the church, but are persistent in their unrepentance. Because unrepentance proves that we don't belong to him. Unrepentance proves that we do not belong to Jesus. And with the sword of his word, he will judge. As I mentioned to you, you can read this on your own time because I'm running out of time. Um, In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus comes back, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, on a white horse, tattooed down his leg, sword coming from his mouth to judge the nations. But the sword coming from his mouth is his word. Here's what I need you to see. Before you view the sword of Jesus as a weapon, I need you to see it as a scalpel. And Jesus, the great physician, wants to graciously cut away everything in you that he knows is cancerous and will kill you. It's a scalpel first. Before it's a weapon, it's a scalpel. I have a a good friend um, in Dallas. Her husband um, has a brain tumor. And uh, they they did some radiation. It kind of went away, but now it's back and it's pressing on the optical nerve. And so they're going to go in uh, with this big robot they call the cyber knife. That sounds amazing. But here's what they do with the cyber knife. They can cut away all the cancerous parts and leave intact everything needed for health and vitality. That is precisely what Jesus wants to do in your soul. Cut away everything cancerous, everything he knows will kill you so that you can thrive, so that you can have life and vitality. So he, just as I wrap up here, he says, to the one who conquers, meaning not those who like defeat the enemy of culture. That's not what he means at all, okay? The one who conquers is the one who stays close to Jesus. The one who conquers is the one who stays faithful and repentant and, and, and just is like, Jesus, just hold me, hold me close, okay? To the one who conquers, he says, I will give hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except he, the one who receives it. What does all of that mean? Um, interestingly, most scholars say, I don't know. There's a lot of different perspectives and opinions on what these things specifically mean. Now, hidden manna, you know that in the uh, Old Testament, uh, during the Exodus journey, God provided manna from heaven, bread from heaven for his people, and he only gave them enough for the day. If they tried to collect more, it rotted. But there was a little bit of manna that he, that, that he instructed Moses to put in a golden pot. And he put it in a golden pot, and he put it in the ark. And the ark went in the temple, which is where God's presence was supposed to be. And that manna miraculously was supposed to be preserved so that over the ages they could look back on the man and go, God sustained us, God strengthened us, God provided for us. Well, Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter six and he says, I am the bread from God who gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. And so what Jesus is saying here is, hey, if you conquer, if you stay close to me, if you stay faithful to me, I will strengthen you, I will sustain you. I will nourish you. I will give you life and vitality. Okay, then we have the white stone. This is probably the least clear. 
What does the white stone mean? Um, in, in Roman trials, if you were a, a juror, you'd have a black stone and a white stone. And if you convicted them, you give them a black stone. If you acquitted them, you gave them the white stone. And so perhaps this has to do with final justification, right? That we are uh, declared righteous before God and then made completely righteous. Um, another th- thought that I think is really helpful is that um, victors at athletic games were given a white stone as a ticket as an, uh, to, to enter a banquet, a feast celebrating their victory. And so perhaps Jesus is saying, you have a place at the table in my eternal feast. Welcome to the table. And he says, on that stone will be a name that no one knows. And most scholars agree, this is probably a new name that he gives to each individual believer. You know how if you're very close to someone, whether it's a, a, a family member, a friend, a spouse, you kind of give them a nickname. Maybe you have pet names for each other. No one else knows. Boo-boo, you know, all those stupid things. And um, it's probably not quite like that, but, but that Jesus is displaying his affection for his people and each one of us. He knows by name, but he's going to give you a new name, a name that only you and him know. In fact, this actually fulfills a um, prophecy from Isaiah chapter 62 that I'll read real quick, and then I promise I will be done. Isaiah 62, listen to this. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings of your glory and all the kings of your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. Speaking of the church. Brothers and sisters, God delights in you. He's simply asking you to hold fast to his name and to be discerning of these false ideas and teachings that are so prevalent and want, want to come in. Did you know that the name Balaam and the name Nicolaitis both, um, uh, uh, they come from the root meaning to destroy the people. False teaching destroys God's people. Hold fast to Jesus. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, okay, got a few questions we're gonna put up on the screen, I believe, and then we'll move into our time of response. Thank you for your patience. I know I've gone long, but we got one service. You got nothing else to do. So uh, <laughs> first question is this. You can write these down as they come, take a picture of the screen when they're all up, but I want you to take these with you. Uh, to breakfast, community group, whatever you're doing after this, lunch, I guess. Um, How well am I holding fast to Jesus? Okay, Am am I gripping Jesus, his name, his word, by the spirit, am I holding fast to Jesus and Jesus alone? Um, How well am I doing that? Some of you maybe are, you don't have a firm grip on him. You know, he's slipping away from you. Let's talk about that. Secondly, who influences my thinking more, Christ or the surrounding culture? Um, I really want you to answer that question and, and probably most of us already know the answer. Who influences my thinking more, Christ or the surrounding culture? Third question, uh, where do I feel pressure to compromise scripture? What are the ideas? What are the thoughts? Now listen, some of these things that are out there right now, uh, it would be great if they were true. It'd make our lives a whole lot easier if they were true. They're just not. Where do I feel pressure to compromise scripture, to, to hold Jesus, but also to hold on to these false ideas, false beliefs, things that Jesus has clearly spoken about and we wanna kind of reinterpret um, to suit ourselves. And then fourth, um, what does repentance need to look like in regards to my thoughts and beliefs? What does repentance need to look like? If I'm gonna hold fast to Jesus and Jesus alone, that means repentance. And so what does it mean for me to repent of wrong thoughts, wrong beliefs, wrong ideas, things that are cultural but aren't biblical that I need to repent of and and embrace what God says over what the world says? Okay, I'm gonna leave these questions up for you uh, to think through. Um, 
to pray over. And then uh, we're gonna move into our time of communion. Now, um, I keep forgetting to say this. So I'm gonna say this right now. Uh, the white bowls are for wine. The black bowls are for juice. So just remember white is wine, blue, sorry, black is juice. Um, there's gonna be four stations here uh, from the back of the room up against the plastic all the way down. We're gonna start back there. So when it's time uh, and you're ready, you can come down these four aisles come to one of the open stations. Someone will speak to you and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. They will say, this is the blood of Christ spilled for you. There's no magic in this. We are remembering, we are celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And so uh, if you're a Christian, you are welcome to come down uh, to participate in communion. If you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to stay seated during this time. Um, this is not, the sacred meal is not for you. Uh, as you make your way back to your seats, you can come up the side aisles there. There are black boxes uh, for giving or connect cards. If you're new around here and want to be known, you can drop uh, a connect card uh, in the giving box, uh, and then you can make your way back to your seat. And so when everybody gets through, we'll sing a couple more songs, and then we'll welcome some new members, and I'll send you out with a benediction. So uh, let me pray, and then uh, we'll have just a moment of silence. When my wife and I get up, that'll be the signal that from the back to the front, the tables are open, okay? Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this opportunity to study the word, and uh, I just pray that you would have encouraged us, uh, that you have challenged us, that maybe we are realizing even now some of the things that we are believing that are not true. And whether that's because we just don't know the Bible well enough or uh, we're lacking discernment, we're lacking a biblical community to, to sort of walk these things out in, help us, Lord, help us. Don't, we know that we are not condemned in Christ. That is, um, you took the condemnation for us and yet you want to correct us. And so help us to uh, embrace your word, to study it, to love it, to know it, um, and for it to do its work in us, uh, to bring us to convictions uh, that we may hold that go against the ways of our world, but, um, but honor you. We love you. And now as we respond in faith and repentance, um, would you be honored and glorified as we worship you through communion and giving and song. We ask your blessing over our time together in the name of Jesus. And we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Let's just be still for a moment. <clears throat>